Happy Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And Jim, as I always say, my favorite episodes are the ones that we have special guests with us. Uh, not that I mind uh, hanging out with you uh, exclusively, <laughs> but uh, always fun when a friend uh, stops by. And we're lucky enough to have Brett Collin with us today, who uh, appears in the film and many other of our, of our favorite films. Uh, sir, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you guys for having me again. And Brett, this is, uh, although this, this particular scene, you are in uh, a very large crowd scene and it's kind of, you have to, you have to kind of hit the pause button on your VCR to, to spot you in this uh, large crowd of, I think everybody uh, who isn't on Apollo 13 is in this, it's in the scene in the background. <laughs> right. um, I, was, I was running, for one thing, just getting through makeup and costuming must have taken up most of the day that day, I would think, just to get everybody in their short sleeves and... Uh, and well, ties. it wasn't difficult. They all wore white shirts and, and ties. So, and I was, the, the great thing about being in that scene is uh, I'm not wearing that because I'm backup crew and I'm the Capcom, you know, which is what the, traditionally the Capcom is, is he's one of the guys that would have been on the backup crew. Like when Kevin jumped in and over and took over for Gary Sinise, he was part of my crew. So I knew all, that's why that they're the Capcoms because they know all the technical jargon they know exactly you know the, the mission itself and that's why well actually when we were shooting the film we were rehearsing and and Rita Ryak the costume designer comes running up to me and I'm in a white shirt and tie. she goes come oh god we've made a big mistake and I'm like what she goes you're an astronaut and that that also kicked in I had to go to astronaut training school with Tom and Kevin and Gary and Bill oh Bill, cool. bless his soul. um but you know they put me in those shirts those rayon kind of you know those really colorful ones and she said you probably don't want to wear these and they all the other guys turned around they were like baby blue and bright yellow and I went oh I'll wear those you will and I went hey man I'm in a room with like 80 guys you know all wearing the same thing and I'll jump (laughs) but no they had uh like three makeup trailers I mean the principals were in one trailer you know I was fortunate to be able to go in there Tom's makeup artist did my makeup um the key guy um but that you know yeah they were we were all called in, we, but we also didn't wear much makeup. Uh, what they did, which was interesting to show the, 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 the sort of progression of lack of sleep and the stress that we were all under, it was a real, I mean, most of the guys like in the background and stuff would just get you know, like powdered or a little pancake or something. I don't know what they put on them. But what the guy did for me that was Tom's makeup artist, he, he, for all of us, he used watercolors under our eyes so that he could create a darker like circle and with some yellow and just to make it look like we hadn't been outdoors and we were tired. So there wasn't a lot of makeup put on. There was sort of a, a basic base and then that stuff. So the makeup wasn't that complicated. And getting dressed, I mean, we were, you know, it was really like old home week because I know most of the guys that are in the movie, you know, guys that had two lines, guys that had real big roles. I mean, Ed Harris is a friend. You know, we all knew each other. So it was really like you'd go to work and it was one of those few movies where you went to work and you were 
really excited because you're going to see all your buddies and you get to work with Ron Howard and Tom Hanks, who was so generous, as was Bill and Kevin and Gary. Um, it was really a, a, a thrill just to go to Universal and shoot that day. Yeah, I get to wear a cool headset and things. and, and <laughs> Yeah, we're all in a loop. That's the weird thing is between takes, I think I said this in the last time we talked, you know, guys were talking about their cars and, oh, I drive this car. And we can all hear each other. I mean, it really is a loop, so everyone can chime in. And one guy asked Tom, he goes, hey, Tom, what kind of car do you drive? And he went, what? He goes, what, what kind of car do you drive? He goes, I drive a minivan. I got three kids. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was um, – I remember that day, too. Um, it was a really interesting experience because it was truly um, – having grown up in Houston and, and kind of lived through the NASA – you know, I mean, Space City, that was our nickname for Houston. And, you know, we knew the story, but it's interesting when you work on something for eight weeks shooting and you shoot that scene, which is one of the last scenes I believe we shot, you know, and, they, and, and Ron got up and said to us, he goes, you know, this is that moment where your friends might die. You know, you don't know if they're going to make it. And, you know, he kind of talked us up to the point of the emotional impact of what it would feel like to to succeeded and brought these three guys home from an impossible mission that, you know, we all and most of people thought they were probably going to die. And we succeeded. And so it was really heartfelt at that moment when we're, we're sitting there and Tom, you know, and he's talking to us and we're all, and the great thing is Tom and all the guys are in the other room and they hadn't even started shooting yet. They did the, the off camera for us. And it, that was fantastic. Wow. So, so it was that far. I, I, I was, I was wondering about that with the, uh, what the interplay was if they had shot the uh, capsule scenes first, but that was, that was then toward the end. So you were one of the first, the first scenes to be shot would have been mission control just to get all the, well, we shot, I think one, I think it was one scene we shot. My wife's in the movie too, Michelle. She plays one of the astronauts wives. She's the blonde that's always in the house with, uh, with Tom's wife, Catherine. Okay. Oh, okay. She looks sort of like the Joey Heatherton with a little blonde Bob. And, yeah. 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 Uh, that's my wife, Michelle Little, and we're still married. That's who's downstairs. <laughs> she got pregnant with our daughter. That's how long this movie is. My daughter's 25 now, and she was got pregnant on the movie. So that was 26 years ago. But anyway, we, um, we may have shot one scene, this, the opening party where they're watching the guys walk on the moon. They, oh, okay, no, yeah. You know, we're all sitting yeah. around. Uh, yeah, that's Apollo, Apollo 11. It was the Apollo 11 landing yeah. that they were watching. Okay. Right. And then we went into Mission Control. So they shot all of Mission Control first, and that was eight weeks. And then they went into the capsule stuff and then went to Houston and got on the Vomit Comet and shot all that stuff. You know, it was, it was a, people ask me all the time what my favorite movie I worked in or a television show or whatever, and they're all different. You know, you have, you have a love of things for different reasons. I mean, and one of the important things about this movie was when I got to work with Ron, I got to work with Andy, who's my best friend, who's a unit publicist, and all those actors I knew or got to know really well on the film. The great thing is my wife got pregnant on that movie after we had had lots of failed pregnancies and miscarriages and stuff. And we had done in vitro, which didn't work. And she got pregnant naturally, which uh, she goes, what did that? I said, you remember that Saturday morning? <laughs> we both laugh about it. But um <laughs> You know, my wife got pre impregnated with our with our daughter, who was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Wow! So, and and you didn't follow Ron Howard's uh, uh, plan, where he names he names you didn't name her Aquarius for anything. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, and her Harper, um, she's an actress now as well. 
but she, um, Ron, we went to the, I think it was the premiere. We'd already had the baby and Harper didn't have hair for like two months. She was bald as a cue ball. <laughs> Ron walked into the theater right before it started. And we were in the back in this little, they had a, it was at Grauman's uh, Theater in Hollywood. I went, Ronnie, Ronnie. And he turned around and he came over and he goes, we had our baby. And he goes, oh, it's so great. And I said, I have a question for you. Our daughter doesn't have any hair. What were you doing 10 months ago with my wife? <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of went ah and then walked away I mean, that's like tired. But, so, yeah but, but i like him I, I yeah. socially and you know he's a good guy and he's a really nice man and, and a smart businessman too and a great director yeah yeah and he definitely definitely knows his his uh material i mean this this movie I, I think that the, the constant refrain that we've had from a lot of people who, uh, who write into us about the movie, they said that, that, you know, this movie, you know, these people that are in their 30s and 40s now, they said this movie kind of got them on their uh, job in the space industry. This got them to be interested in saying to themselves, I, I could do this. I'd like to be one of those people in mission control and, you know, be able to talk to folks in space exploring the universe. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, and also the sort of concentration on detail, the production designer and Ron and the producers, and they all, like, I think I said in the last time we spoke that Jerry, who was one of the technical advisors in Mission Control, said, let's go grab a cup of coffee. And we walked through a door and he went, what? And it was like off the stitch. It was just, you know, we walked, <laughs> basically walked to a wall. And he goes, what? I go, what are you doing? And he goes, well, this is where the, I said, no, we've got to go to craft service. He goes, well, in Houston, this is where the coffee is. <laughs> I mean that's it fooled him, you know, because yeah. he and there with us the whole time. It's such it's such a beautiful set. I mean, the set, the the mission control set is enormous, and I'm trying to imagine, you know, back in the film camera days, the amount of light they had to throw on that one stage just to get everybody lit up the way they were evenly lit. That must have just been it must yeah, have been like well, it daytime. Was, it was pretty impressive what they did, and and the great thing is after the movie, I went down to Houston to see my family at some point. Yeah, I think it was that, or when they were either shooting on the vomit comet, and as I. I Jerry invited me to NASA and I went there and he took me in the room because they, they got the room, you know, mission control room that they don't use anymore. Obviously it's outdated, but it's exactly, I mean, I walked in, I went, I think we're back on set. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was, it's that good. So the production designer did an amazing job. And, um, but back to the scene, that was amazing. Cause that was the, I probably, I think the one untrue thing that, that we shot in the movie, and I don't. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but Gary Sinise's character, in in life, in the real world, did not come in and give the guys the instructions on what to do. You know, the, the coming back into the atmosphere that that would go against protocol, but they did it because I I believe one they were paying Gary a ton of money, and Gary's really smart. He he kept taking himself out of scenes like we don't need that. I mean, why would I do this? And Ron would go, hey, you're right, you're right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they got to the point where like, well, we got to keep him in the movie, and and that that's when they brought they changed that and brought him in and had him do that because he walks in and I shake his hand and I move to the side and he sits in my chair. Yeah, it's um, I I mean they they do take a little bit of license with it. I mean, in general, your character, as as far as I could tell, is mostly Joe Kerwin. There there are a bunch of different Capcoms. It wasn't. No, it wasn't Joe Kerwin. I'm trying to think of his name. He's a farmer now in Michigan. He was an astronaut. Because I spent about two hours on the phone with him. And I can't remember his name right now. God, that's really shameful of me. Because uh, I called him. And because I asked Jerry who he was. And he said, this is him. And this is his phone number. Give him a call. Was, and he was, was it Bruce McCandless, maybe? No, it's the other. I mean, I, my character's name, they call me Capcom 1. But yeah. I, I needed a name. So I created 
because Andy's my best friend. I said, Andy, I'm Andy, and my, la my wife's last name is Little, so I'm Andy Little. <laughs> but this, I, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, and it's not, jeez, uh, I can't think of it right now. What were we talking oh, uh, about? There's Vance Brand as well. I, 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 can't, I, could, I can't remember. To be honest with you, I just okay, can't. yeah, I, I, I was, I'm just, I'm looking through the the flight transcripts of who was talking when. I'm just, if I throw out names at random, that's, just, I, I just see Vance did, Brand talk. Joe Kerwin or did, is that Joe Joe Kerwin? Uh, Vance Brand talked to him, um, and of course uh, Ken Mattingly. I just have to, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at different shift changes just to see who else. I've, I've got it. I've actually got the the the, tr the real air to ground manual. Every every word that was uttered from takeoff. Oh. The landing so i mean we pulled stuff from it actually the whole scene where which we're not talking about now but the scene where you know the the the, the filter they have to they have to sort of rig together so that they're not going to die from carbon dioxide poisoning yeah oh yeah that was uh, with jack lausma was the uh capcom on that one so but that yeah was, that's who it was jack, jack lausma oh okay yeah yeah thank you very much but anyway i went ron comes up to me and goes Hey, we're going to shoot this. Go to the the real and find the interesting stuff in that sequence. So I found about four pages of dialogue that was really vital, and I I wrote it all, I hand wrote it, I hand I hand wrote it all out for Ron. And the next day, I went to the set, and I was sitting at my Capcom station. He goes, "Hey, did you do that?" I go, "Yeah, here." And I gave it to him. He goes, "Oh, that's good. No, that won't work. That's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." And he ends up with about two full pages of dialogue, which is all technical stuff, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, "Well, let's shoot this." And I said, "Well, when?" And he goes, I don't know, 20 minutes? I went, Ron, I can't. And he goes, well, figure it out. So I sat down and wrote my dialogue and then mathematical equations and dialogue. And I pasted them and had to score it where I could actually, and you can't tell in the film, but I'm reading a lot of it. You know, it's like, I'm going, yeah, we got to do this, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'd look over here and there'd be the next line. It was like I had a teleprompter, but it was all handwritten. And it worked. You know, yeah, we're we're great. He trusted me because there were a couple times I'd scream, go, don't, don't worry about it. It's great. Keep going. You know, and we ended up getting it. Yeah, Jack Lousman, because I called him and I spent about, I guess, about two hours on the phone with the guy. And he was so gracious and lovely and, and helpful. And he and I think I said this last time we talked, that was the big question I had for him, because, you know, as an actor, you think, all right, what's the drama? Where's the drama? What can I, you know, what's the obstacle here? And I said, wasn't there a time? I mean, all that those days they were up there you guys were trying to figure out how to get them home and you had a little sleep and when you did get to go home did you ever walk out to your car and sit there and like cry or like you know being scared for your friends and he goes oh that's not how we work so what he goes that's that's not how we're trained that's what do you mean he goes, well we're pilots so if there's a problem with the plane it's going down you push eject the problem is is we knew going in that there's no eject button and that we're taking our lives in our hands and so we have a problem we try and solve it we don't try and figure our way out the only way you can get through this is to solve the problem. That kind of became my mindset, you know, in the sense of how I approach the role. It's it's amazing. I mean, when you meet these these fellows, it's it's you you wish you could be like that instead of like you said, going out to your car and just crying because it it yeah, does take quite a bit of fortitude. Do something to show your emotional distress, you know, about what's going on. And I'm oh geez, I'm what's this? I'm going blank on his name right now. Um, the technical advisor for the astronauts. Um, and well, I played, Dave, Dave Scott. Dave Scott. I played Dave in his From the Earth to the Moon. And, you know, I talked to him a lot. And we got to be really close friends because I, you know, after that, then I went on to do From the Earth to the Moon. And I played him. And I think my favorite moment, one of my favorite moments ever as an actor was when that was airing. On, it was airing on Sunday nights on HBO. He called me up on a Saturday. He says, would you and Michelle like to come over tomorrow night? We'll have steaks and watch the show together. 
because it was the big episode about I did like four of the ten or whatever they did, and yeah. that was his episode, you know, where he went and found the original crust of the moon. And I said, sure, yeah, I'd love that. I said, we have my wife's best friend from Canada's here. Do you mind if she comes? She goes, oh, of course not. So we go to his townhouse in Manhattan Beach. I'm in Venice Beach, not that far. He and I walked down to the beach and talked for a bit. And we went up and we barbecued the steaks. And then the great thing is, I mean, really talking about history. You remember TV trays? Oh, sure, yeah. Like, you know, those were big in the 50s and 60s. The family would sit around and watch TV with their TV tray. He had TV trays. And we all sat around the TV and watched the show and ate our dinner. And, and when it was over, I got a lot of stories about Dave, but the, what was over was great was, you know, we all, I was really choked up because I was watching the show, watching me play him while he sat next to me watching me play him. You know what I mean? <laughs> the weirdness of that. And when it was wow. over, he, he was looking at his plate. And all he said very quietly was, thank you. Wow. And I just like, I said, no, thank you, Dave. And he went, Brett, thank you. He repeated it twice. And just, I was gobsmacked. I didn't know what to say at that point. because I was tearing up and like, you know, I'm a big baby. I'll, I'll cry. I'll cry in commercials, you know? So, <laughs> my it, was really, it was a moving moment for me. Yeah. I got to tell you, my favorite part of that, when, when you talk about that episode, my favorite part of that is when you're talking to Dr. Silver, back on earth and you tell him that you know he was with you guys every step of the way that that's an emotional scene in that in that episode i, I just i love that uh, that scene yeah i it's interesting as i've talked to a lot of i mean i have people who write me and you know on facebook or whatnot and one guy i talked to said you know this i use this in my science class and in this history teacher told me i use this in a history class because it it shows the history of the space exploration and and then NASA and, and 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 to me that was really cool to hear. It's like, oh my God, you know, I did this TV show, got paid for it, thank God. You know, and that's why, you know, you're doing a job, but then you realize that it has an effect. It, it's an ongoing effect. It just doesn't end. You yeah, know, no, it, movie's it, over. Just it, like it, Apollo Bean. I mean, I had friends that wouldn't see the movie and I was like, why? And they went, Well, I know the ending. I said, just go <laughs> see it. And then of course they call me up going, Oh my god, I was crying my head off. Yeah, did, you know. Did they go see Titanic? I mean we're talking about, you know, yeah. when that they enter the atmosphere and you finally hear the uh, Houston and you know they you just everyone just goes oh my god and that you know it's it's so well done and so emotionally uh fulfilling and impactful that you know you can't help yourself but to be moved by it yeah I, I mean between Apollo 13 it was so forgot and people forget this because you know a quarter of a, a quarter of a century has gone by since the movie came out but back before Apollo 13 a lot of people didn't remember the the drama, the 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 courage, and and all of the story of Apollo thirteen. And now it's like we uh, you run into people, and the only thing they know is Apollo eleven and Apollo thirteen. Right. Um, well, you know, also NASA tried to brush it under the rug, you know, because yeah. there was an embarrassment of a failure, and you know that's the great line that Ed has in the movie. He goes, you know, this isn't our our, our worst failure; it's our greatest success. You yeah. know, when he says that to the head of NASA, I think Joe played that part. But, it, it, you know, it was like, it, it's true. I mean, to be able to take guys and throw them up in space, have a, a fatal gas leak that disables the, the mission, basically, it just kills the mission. And then they don't have the resources to get back. And how do you manage to get these three guys back? You know, and use gravitational pull, use all those things. And then they had to fly it in. There was no kind of way of like saying, let's just punch this in autopilot and we'll will hit it because you know there's that one little sliver if they miss it they're going to bounce off the surface and they're going to be dead and these guys pulled it off and it was really impressive and really beautiful and and inspiring in my opinion 
it's it's incredible that uh, you know that this that this all happened. And in, in considering the time frame of all the stuff that was going on between you know Apollo One and well, you know you were you were in another uh, another uh, space show about a disaster in the from the from the Earth to the Moon episode. Uh, from Gemini 8, where, uh, you know, we almost lost two other astronauts, and you you would have been one of them, Dave Scott and Neil Armstrong, uh, losing, yeah. contr- losing control in their Gemini. You know, the fact that we kept doing that and kept going even after, you know, the moon landing was successful, but we kept going back. It's just such a an incredible story of courage that even though people have died or nearly died to go there, they, they still went back. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you ride a horse and you fall off, you get back on. I mean, that's the concept. It's, you know, the old cliche, it's not how many times you fall down, it's how many times you get up. And those guys proved that, you know, they kept fighting and getting up and, and you know, they'd have a failure, you'd lose an astronaut, they lost the guys in the fire, the test, in the test of um, Gus Grissom and those guys. What was, what, what mission was that? Apollo, Apollo 1, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you have that stuff that happens that you'd think would stop it, but you know, one, we had a, a president in Kennedy who said, no, we're going to go. We're going to get there. And it's impressive that they were able to do it. And, and it's a, something that's so epic, which is sad that we have sort of stopped the exploration of the planets around us. You know, I mean, we're doing it with unmanned vehicles, but I, I still think it's important. I mean, the whole concept of going to the moon was to set up some sort of, they, this is what Jerry said, was if they could figure out how to get station on the moon. Travel from the moon would be easy to other planets because there's no gravitational pull hardly. You know, Earth is the problem. Yeah, well, we, and a lot of these planets don't really have atmospheres. I mean, obviously, we don't want to fly to the sun because you'd you, be, you know, French fried from the heat. But the, the other planets, I think we should be exploring. So, well, ho- hopefully, I mean, with, with Artemis, with the new, the new project that they're working on uh, in getting, uh, getting human beings back on the moon by 2024 is ambitious to say the least and you know it's like they said in it not in your movie but in another one no bucks buck no no bucks no buck rogers so hopefully the artemis program will be uh well funded and you know a- approached with the same kind of enthusiasm that the first moon landing was i mean most it's it's kind of weird i mean we're right you and i are of an age where we watch people walk on the moon but there's more people on earth now who have never seen a moon landing than there are people who have seen a moon landing and you know that's right. gonna, that's going to change yeah. so. it's unfortunate but it's true because that's how how long ago we sort of walked away from that endeavor yeah yeah we'll get back to that endeavor we need to get back to our exploration we need to look back at you know where we are and where we're going and that's part of that you know i mean man was you know we wouldn't i wouldn't be in california if the people didn't go well what's out that way and and you know whatever they had to do and, and what we did to the native americans was horrible but you know what i mean the idea that you i mean i guess columbus is wrong because everyone's saying he was such a horrible guy but you know that he discovered america or that the pilgrims got here it's like it's it's all exploration it's it's man's yeah. nature to want to find out what's what they don't understand and why uh, we're not doing that anymore is kind of sad to me I've got. I've got to ask. After after Apollo thirteen came out, you, you know, you saw you saw the movie out there. You know, when Tom when Tom Hanks and, and Imagine and all those uh, folks got together and said, "Hey, we're going to make a, a TV series about all the other all the other missions besides uh, Apollo thirteen, uh, and we want you on board." Did you did you have any trepidation about that? About you know being I don't know typecast. I, I don't think you were you, you weren't typecast, obviously. But um, did it bother you? Like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be 
revisiting old ground or how, how was that when no, you got- well, Exciting for me because you know Dave was our technical advisor. I mean that that's the great story of Bill Paxton, my old friend who's passed away. But I and I love Bill very much. And when Rita told me I had to, you know that I was an astronaut and that I was going to have to go to astronaut training school as well as you know doing the Capcom school or the Mission Control school, I remember walking in and sitting down and it's Gary, Kevin, Bill, Tom, and then me. And Tom's leaning forward and and Bill leans back. We're sitting on like this big couch and Dave's up there talking and. <laughs> So Bill leans back, and the only way Bill can do it, he goes, hey, man, dead guy? And he's pointing at Dave. He's going, that guy took a crap on the moon, man. <laughs> and, Dave just, and Dave just went, Bill, shut up. <laughs> but, you know, it was that. I mean, so it was to be around someone who had been on the moon yeah. and who had gone through this, and he was the poster boy for NASA, was the only six-foot astronaut, uh, I believe, back then. And then I got a call. I remember I was at my other house. I was in Venice Beach. I was at my old house, which I'm no longer, I've been in this house for 23 years now. I get a phone call. I'm on my back porch and it's Tom Hanks. He said, Brett, it's Tom. And I went, Tom, and I thought it was my friend Tom Davies. I went, Tom, he goes, it's Tom Hanks, man. And I was like, hey, how are you? And he goes, hey, I have a question for you. And I go, what? He goes, how would you like to play Dave Scott? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, we're doing a miniseries. I didn't even know about it. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, for HBO. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to play Dave Scott. And he goes, listen, this is what we're doing. We're not paying everybody a lot. It's all double scale for everyone across the board. And I said, probably about six months of your time, six, seven months. And I said, yeah, man, I'm in. Tom, I am in. I'm flattered you called. I would love to do this. And, um, and to his credit, Tom's a really good man. Because there were a lot of downtime. I mean, I'd have like a month off between episodes sometimes. And I got an offer twice to do like TV movies, one for Lifetime, one for another network. And they were paying me a lot of money. And so I called Tom. I called the production office. Is Tom there? And they're like, well, who is this? Brett Cullen. I played Dave Scott. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, Can I, is Tom, you know, hold on. And then you go, what's going on? And I go, I got this offer. My first allegiance is to you. I'm committed to this. I'm not, you know, I've already shot two episodes. I'm not going anywhere, but I have this offer. And he goes, how much? And I told him, that's nice. And he goes, what's going on? I said, well, I'm trying to buy a house and a new house and this money would help. And, and, and we have an, a day we overlap. And he says, well, then do the TV movie. I said, well, what are, he goes, look, Brett, when you're done, call me. I'll fly you and the other two actors out. And we'll shoot that scene. Don't worry about it. I said, are you serious? And he goes, Brett, I'm completely serious. I'm thankful you're doing this. And if I can be of any help and I'm the producer, I'm directing that episode. So screw it. Yes. Go do the TV. Movie. So, I mean, not many people would do that. Most people would be like, no, 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 no. That you're, you, I, you know, you, you agreed, you know? And yeah. He was just a, he was a minch, you know, if there's, if you use the Jewish oh, yeah. term, a good guy, he's just a minch. And I, and I, and, and you brought up Jim Lovell earlier. He was honored at the uh, museum over here in Santa Monica. And Tom was doing the movie where, you know, Wilson, where he's on the island. Uh, uh, yeah, a castaway. Ca castaway. And he's skinny as a rail. He's, he's got the long blonde hair with the, you know, the, I don't know what they put in his hair to make it look that way. But, you know, he looked like he was in the movie. He came back for this. I was sitting there. I saw Paxton and, and, and Louise, his wife, and my wife and I were there. And, all of a sudden, someone jumps on my back, and it's Tom Hanks. And he's like, ah! And I was like, dude, what's going on? You look like a surfer, man, because I'm a surfer. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing this film, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, we all sit down. It's a dinner. And then Tom gets up to talk about Jim Lovell with no cards, no teleprompter, and talk for about 20 minutes so brilliantly that my wife leaned over to me at one point and went, I'd vote for him for president. Because he's so <laughs> articulate, and he's so yeah. compassionate. 
and so wonderful, so wonderfully well spoken that it was just like this guy is so good and so just full. He's a full-bodied human being, and you like him. And when he speaks, you listen. And the and the love he has for Jim Lovell, and the love he has for this that project, and uh, for Apollo, and for from the Earth to the Moon, as well as the Pacific and all the other things he's done. I mean, I'm now attack. I'm addicted to I, you know everything he does on on. Uh, CNN, all those uh, documentaries he does about the 60s and the 70s yeah. and the 80s. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. He's, he's quite a historian. Every, you know, all, all of his projects has such, have such a depth to them. I mean, you know, even, you know, like Saving Private Ryan and stuff like that. There's nothing superficial in his, in his work. I mean, you know, he's, he's, done the, he's done the goofy comedies and, and romantic comedies, but I think where you really see his heart, his heart is in the past, is in history, is in digging a little bit deeper. And I think that that really comes out in this. I mean, it's Ron Howard's film, but Tom Hanks is definitely the the heart and soul of the of this movie. When you're watching it, it's so geared well, he, toward. He Tom influenced me in such a big way. I, I don't know where it was or when it was. We had this discussion, but it was really about what changed in your life because, you know, he did do the the movie with the dog, and he did the comedies, and you know, he did Splash and stuff that, you know, started his career really other than yeah. you know in film that is not in television you know he did all these things and he was making money and he just said you know I, I one day sat down and went what am I doing what do I want to do and what am I doing and what I'm doing isn't what I want to do and he chose to start trying to do things that mattered to him like Philadelphia films that had real Forrest Gump which in my mind is one of the greatest, and I, I use this and I say this purposely, it's the greatest movie about a fable that you've ever seen. Because it's not true. It's not based on a real person. It's a fable. I mean, all these historical events that he was at, that guy <laughs> wasn't there. So, you know, it's a fable, but it's brilliant. And then you move on to the stuff he's done. I mean, I just watched the other night the movie, you know, about the, the, the submarine fighting and the, the black pit, they call it, in the oh. Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, and it's so watchable and, and it's so good. And and he's just an, an interesting guy. But him saying that to me about I made a choice, Brett, to actually choose to do things that mattered to me as an artist made me start doing that. Made me start looking around going, do uh you know, every once in a while, you know, you, you have a mortgage, you have your kid in school, so if you have to take jobs, maybe you think, Oh god, the writing's not that good, or I you know, this isn't really my my thing but I need the gig and you'll take it. But when you get the opportunity to be involved with something that matters, something that truly has gravitas and that is something that, you know, you're going to look back on like Apollo 13, where you go, I'm so proud to be a part of that film. You know, it's something that makes you go, my daughter can show her kids and say, that's your grandfather. Yeah, there he is. And I think that's, that, that seems to be the common element. <laughs> my in, like, daughter, my daughter's children, when they see that movie, I mean, there's movies I see, I mean, I have some really great old favorite movies and I'm going blank, like a John Wayne movie, the John Ford one, uh, The Searchers. You know, yeah. it's a dated, but it's a great film. It was the very first film ever done in Hollywood about prejudice, you know, racism. Because, yeah. you know, he was going to kill his niece if he caught her because she'd been with the Redskins, as he called them. You know, I watch it now. I still love it. I still think it's brilliant. I mean, the, the way it's shot is amazing, but it's dated. But this film, I think in 30 years, it will not be dated. It'll still matter and it'll still be relevant. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I, this is. I agree. It's, yeah. It, it's such a uh, it's such a piece of time that I don't think, you know, even the even in the style, I don't think the style would be enough nowadays. Like like nowadays, everything has to be lightning cuts and back and forth and and 
the way the pace of this film it's so it, it draws you in so much I, I i agree that like 50 years from now people will be watching this and going that's what it was like back in 1970 that's what you know those days in april were, were happening and oh yeah I mean, it's well like you know we talk i mean you guys know the space industry and and how people kind of gravitate towards something when they discover it and realize you know it's sort of like i did the movie 42 i didn't realize and you know jackie robinson playing in the major league baseball the first black man to, to sort of break that mold of a man of color being allowed into that world and the problems he came up and i don't know if you ever saw the movie but there's yeah nice, it's great film the, but I, the yeah. philadelphia manager goes off on him and is calling him the n-word and you know all those horrible things he does and the interesting thing about it is that's probably what he dealt with every day i mean that's one of the horrors of the film that that those that scene in philadelphia where he's just lambasted and treated so badly by the players and the philadelphia side and their coach when you look at it i mean you really look at the history once i did you realize no he dealt with that every day but as a film a film goer or as an audience member i don't think you could watch that film and enjoy it because of the abuse that that man took you know what i mean yeah, no, yeah. it's difficult. It's, so you have to pick I, shoes a little bit. But this film in itself is always going to be relevant. Well, I, let's say, back. I, yeah, I, I do have to tell you that my youngest, when I, when I was explaining that we were having you on, she's like, I know the name, but I don't know where. And the minute I said Goodwin from Lost, and she went, oh, yeah, him. Tell him he died really good. He really did a good death. I said, yeah, he did, he did really good. So my, my, my youngest says, congratulations on dying very well so. oh, yeah. well i i died but then i recurred for five more years yeah well you know, yeah. on yeah. um you know as a as flashbacks so yeah. that was kind of sweet i yeah. uh I, I gotta tell you one of my favorite i, I mean obviously apollo 13's uh my uh, among my my favorite work of yours i'm a big fan of the replacements love that movie um yeah. I think it's it, it, fantastic fun movie to just go and, and enjoy and watch. And, you know, I, I got to ask you, and I know it's something we had talked about before, what are you up to now? What are you working on? Well, I have, uh, I did a film with Hugh Jackman. That It's a, it's a smaller role, but it was, it's my follow-up to Joker. But I, my, I did it because the director is married to Jonah Nolan, and I worked, her name's Lisa Joy, and she's a writer and a director on, on Westworld, and it's Jonah's wife. Now, I did, I did Dark Knight Rises with Chris Nolan, and then I got hired for person of interest. And even my manager said, no, nah, they're going to hire someone in New York. And I get this offer. And I ended up recurring on person of interest for five years that it ran. And Joan and Nolan created that. And when they said, who did you know? How did you get, the, you know, my, they were all going, how did you get this job? And then I go to New York and I meet this guy and, and he goes, how are you doing? I said, I'm a little jet lagged because I just come back from London uh, or actually uh, Nottingham shooting uh, Dark Knight Rises. And, he said, yeah, I know. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you've been working with my brother, Chris. This guy had a Chicago accent. I went, Chris. And he goes, Chris Nolan? And I went, oh, you're Jonah Nolan. And he goes, yeah. And I went, well, wh why do you have an American accent? And he has an English one. He goes, oh, he just puts that on to get more work. And, and, <laughs> and I said, well, he goes, well, our parents were American and English, and they divorced. And obviously, Jonah was raised in America, and he was raised in England. But they're very close. So I'd worked with Chris. I worked with Jonah. And then I got this offer and I was like, I don't know. And, and, and I read it and then I, I, they were saying, you want, it's Christmas money, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's not that much, but it'd be, you know. And I said, well, let me, let me look, check this out. And I looked it up and I saw Lisa Joy and I looked her up and I realized it was Jonah's wife. And I went, I'll do it. Because she had written it for me, I find out later. And she didn't think I'd do it. 
because it was it's only like three scenes or something and i was like no man i want to work with you and she goes now you've worked with the whole family because i'd love to stay in their orbit i'd love to work with those guys again i'm i'm, I'm a huge admirer of all three of them they're all brilliant so and this movie it's called uh reminiscence reminiscence uh, okay at least that's a working title and it's it's about the future and global warming so wow. i've got that coming out at some point it's in post now I have uh, a series that just dropped July 1st on, on Amazon. It was privately financed. We shot in upstate New York and in New York. And it's based on three books called Big Dogs. In 2008, if there'd been no bailouts, what would the world look like? And it's told through the eyes of a, a police department, the New York City Police Department. And I play Captain Cutchin, who has, there's different units and mines cabs. And all my cops, because there's no money, they have to buy their own ammo. They have to buy their <laughs> gas. They drive cabs instead of police oh. cars. I've got to see this. That sounds great. <laughs> well, it's, not, it's really good. You see yeah. it, the first, the opening scene in the show is like a, a five and a half minute monologue I have about the decline of the West, of the Roman Empire and how we're we're next. And that's and on Amazon. Eating a tuna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, this is on Amazon. Is that right? Amazon Prime, big dogs. Okay. You, you might have to search it. It's not one of the key things because they didn't produce it. It's something they bought. It's got, it's like, it's tripled in viewership in the last, over the weekend. It's like, it's really, it's going well. Oh, okay. My friends produced it and it was directed by four different directors. We block shot all eight episodes. You know, it's good. It's, I'm really proud of it. But anyway, I got that. I got Reminiscence and I have a new series that we're waiting to shoot. We've already shot the pilot that Adam McKay produced and directed with Max Borenstein, who wrote it as executive producer about the Los Angeles Lakers about when Jerry Buss buys the team and then they draft Magic. And it's based on a book oh, called wow. Showtime, you know, because that's what the Lakers became. They were Showtime. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about their historic run. And I'm playing Bill Sharman, who's the general manager of the team and also is in, is in the, the Hall of Fame as a player because he played for Boston with Bob Cousy. And he's in the Hall of Fame. And then he coached the, the Lakers to their very first championship with Chamberlain and West. And then they retired. And then he became the general manager of the team. And he talked like this all the time. <laughs> he, he blew his vocal cords out when he was coach. He, he ruined one of his vocal cords. Way of talking, come on. You know, you know he, he struggles. So I have to do that all the time. And, and then the Max called me the other day, he goes, you know, second season, I think is the year that you have the, the surgery and you don't speak for a year. And I said, well, are you still gonna use me? He goes, yeah, that's gonna be the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, how, how is yeah, how you is, can tell I like to talk. So <laughs> how is that how is that going now? I mean with COVID and everything like that, everybody's everybody's shut down. Do you have any plans? Do they have any ways of working around you in small groups or something? I, I was just I'm, No, what they're doing, I mean, some show I mean Max came over the other day. He lives not far from me, and um we had a bottle of wine on the back porch and social distance. And I, I said, What's he goes, you know, I because I had heard we were probably gonna go back August, September. And he said, you know, honestly, Brett, we're probably not going to start pre-production. We just shot the pilot. We, we weren't in production already. And he goes, they, we need to do pre-production for like 14 weeks or something. And he goes, we'll probably start that in November. Probably start principal photography March or April, which is a, a kind of a drag for me. But he goes, look, because I want to go back to work. And he said, well, think of it like this. Just a, John C. Riley plays Jerry Buss, who is amazing. Okay. Jason Clark plays Jerry West, and I can't tell you the rest of the actors' names, but I only worked two days on the pilot, but I worked with those guys. And he said, imagine John tests positive. We're going to have to shut down. Everyone on the crew, every cast member is going to have to go into quarantine. 
then HBO's on the on you know kind of screwed because they're gonna have to pay everybody while we're down or they have to just shut us down. He says, why take that chance? He says, I'd rather be in a position where we have a better handle on this coronavirus or COVID-19 and that we have a way of knowing that we can shoot. I mean, there are gonna be protocols set in place that are gonna be a lot different. Yet probably have to, everyone's gonna to have to be tested prior to shooting. There's gonna be someone on set constantly. Like every time you walk in, it'll take your temperature. Uh, all that stuff, anything that's touched, there's going to be someone that cleans and, and, and disinfects everything any actor or any crew member touches because, you, you know, that, that is transferable, meaning that if there's a prop and I pick it up, the guy's going to clean it after every take if someone else touches it. So it's going to, and I've been told that the schedules, instead of like if you're shooting a series and, and you shoot an episode in like regular television, the network television, you'll shoot anywhere from seven to nine days. It's going to be more like 12 because it's going to be slower. You're not going to have crews all bul bulged in on the stage where you're working and standing around watching a scene. You know, we'll probably come in and with masks and rehearse. And then they'll have a guy there who will mark us. There'll be probably the DP and the director. And then we'll leave. The DP tells everyone what he wants. The stand-ins will follow our marks. And then when they're ready to shoot, we'll come in. We'll probably do one walkthrough with the crew gone, except for camera and sound. And they'll all be over at... at wherever the video village is not near us and we'll walk through and make sure the camera works the shots work you know and that we're in the right positions and then we'll shoot take the masks off shoot as soon as they cut we put the masks back on i wow. think that's going to be the new norm until they have a handle on this yeah now are you shooting in la or up in vancouver where yeah in la it's one of the greatest okay. things the last day i shot it it was a summer it was the first time magic played in the summer league game and i'm sitting with uh west and and jerry jerry bus is there you know, he welcomes magic when he comes out and you know in most summer league games there's like 25 40 people there and yeah. at this one there it was packed to the to the rafters everyone wanted to see this guy because la was so excited about having magic john leans over to me at one point and he goes i have the best attorney and i said you do and he goes yeah i go what, what do you mean by that and he goes well it's in my deal that if they want to move this out of la i get to walk <laughs> and i I love you, man. Because <laughs> I haven't oh. shot anything in Los Angeles. While well, last year I did do uh, uh, Truth Be Told. It's on uh, Apple TV with Octavia Spencer, I mean. And um, I got to shoot. I had shot like five, four episodes or five episodes here. So I was in L.A. shooting. But it, that's been really rare over the last 15 years. Most of the time I'm in Bogota, Colombia on Narcos or Atlanta shooting something or New York City doing Joker or doing, I did the Blacklist this past season. And I'm always gone. Yeah. You know, I yeah. live in hotels and airports and that's the one place you don't want to be right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, this so, will be a commuter job for you for a change. Yeah. I just get in my car, I get up in the morning, have some coffee, drive to work, put makeup on. And that's the other thing. Makeup artists are going to have to wear masks and shields, yeah. gloves. You know, it's like all that stuff, you know, wherever the protocol is going to be, it's going to be different. It's going to be interesting to see how it, how it goes forward. And, and once they get a handle on this virus or they find a vaccine or a cure, whether or not we're going to go back to the old ways or not, or maybe, you know, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of people who work from home who are having to work from home doing zoom and all this stuff like we're doing that may become sort of a, a norm because, you know, companies realize, well, I don't have to have them in the office. They work from home just fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless you're, unless you got a warehouse or you're screwing things together, why have yeah. a desk? Why, you know, why, right. why do you need to even be there? So. And that also saves the company money in terms of office space and all that stuff. So I, I there's going to be some major changes, I think. And it's, 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 you know, I feel bad for my daughter. She's 25 and she's walking into this new world and, 
you know, she has a, a few scenes in the big dogs that I did the Amazon series, but it's, you know, it's like for a young person to have to deal with this new reality is kind of scary to me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, but well, it's, it, you know, it's, I think it's going to be one of those things when you're going to notice a, a period piece in a, uh, in a movie is like when people are together and nobody has a mask on. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. That's the cool thing. It's not masked, but big dogs is sort of a mirror of what we're dealing with now. I mean, where there's no economy and people are like, you know, you have what, 15 million people unemployed. And I mean, New York City, half the city's a riot zone. You know, it's like, it's, it's so, and we didn't mean it. It was, it was all a what if when we did the series and we shot it. It was like, well, what if in 2008 this happened? And now we're looking at it going, wow, this is so closely aligned to what we're dealing with now. It's not based on a disease. It's more based on a fallen economy, a fallen empire, an empire that's crumbling. And that kind of, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't want to get political, but current leadership doesn't lead. They blame everyone else for the problems that crop up. And, and, and that's kind of, I think, what happened back then in our show. Well, yeah, and I think the other, the other thing about, you know, everybody's, everybody's at home. I think a lot, a lot more people are discovering these shows that they might have missed simply because they're, they're aching for entertainment. They're aching for seeing something that they haven't seen before. And where, you know, your show might get a smaller audience now with people scanning their, you know, what's new, what's, what's different, what are people recommending? Um, shows like Big Dogs, which might not have gotten as big a, an audience, you know, before. Now no, that, they were having a difficult, because they made all eight episodes without any input from anyone. It was fi privately financed by the guy who wrote the books, Adam, who, who wrote the, the novels, and he has his own publishing company. So he financed it. They were having difficulty because most companies like Netflix and all them were saying, you know, we like it, but there's certain things we would have done differently. And so they wouldn't jump on board. Well, there's no product being made right now. And they finally kind of turned around and went, well, let's grab this thing because we need product. We need something out there. Now, the interesting thing about the show that I find that is my agent saw it. And she's, you know, she's a wonderful woman, Melissa Spalmer. And she, I called, I said, did you see it? And she goes, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm watching it. And then she called me a few days later and she goes, listen, I got to be honest with you. And she goes, I'm really squeamish because there's some violence in this thing. You know, you see some pretty gross stuff a couple of times. And she goes, I just, I can't, I I just, I, it, it makes me really upset when I see that stuff. And I went, okay. And she goes, you're incredible. I watched almost all your stuff. She said, but what it reminds me of, she goes to those movies in the seventies, like Serpico, those sort of down and gritty sort of rough shows that they made back in those days that didn't have a happy ending necessarily that were about stories that were really hard to watch. And that's kind of what big dogs is like. Oh, wow. 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 I I've got, all these speeches i, I mean because I, when they they interviewed i had a, a zoom meeting actually or a, a what is not a facetime meeting with the the two of the producers are really close friends of mine one of them directed two of the episodes they're a married couple they're very close friends of mine but they the director and the other producers adam and alan and then the director finally says to me he goes can i and it was at six in the morning i was up at pebble beach i was like because i i'd just done it Narcos and Person of Interest back to back, I think, or either that or uh, Queen of the South. I was doing, both times I did Narcos, I was doing another show at the same time. So I was flying all over the place. From wow. Columbia to Dallas, Columbia to New York, LA, back and forth constantly. I was tired. And he, the director says, can I ask you one question? I go, yeah. And he goes, have you ever done Shakespeare? And I said, yeah, I did four seasons with the Shakespeare company. Why do you ask? He goes, well, I'm just curious. And then I read the script and I, you'll see when you watch, if you watch, just watch the first episode, that first scene, 
is literally a six page monologue. Wow. You know, and, and so I made a deal with him. I said, I'll do it. But I said, you can't change the schedule. You can't like say, oh, we're going to shoot that other big scene tomorrow. I said, I need about a week to get these down, each one of them, because there's, I think, three of them or four of them that I have, but two big ones, two giant ones. I have one, I think, I don't know what episode it is, but it's, it's I call it the Newt Rockney speech where I tear into my detectives <laughs> and then talk about myself and then talk about why are you in this room? What are we here for? If you're in here for that, you're in the wrong room. You know, that kind of, it's one of those scenes. I actually had a director, she tried to throw some stuff at me. And I said, you know, I can do that phone call. But, you know, I made a deal with Tony and, and Summer that they wouldn't do this to me. And she goes, oh, honey, this is block shooting. And I said, excuse me? And she goes, well, this is what block shooting is like. And I said, don't tell me about block shooting. I did block shooting for two years in Atlanta on Devious Maids. I did block shooting for two years on Narcos. I know more about block shooting than you'll ever know. So don't start telling me, oh, this is how it works because it doesn't work this way. And she like looked at me in her eyes real big, like, oh, okay. Because, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to be like someone trying to bully you or tell you you don't really know what you you don't understand what's going on and i'm like this is about my work and and if i'm going to do it well you can't break the rules we made we set up the program so that it'll work right and i'll have the time to do it right and you know a little you know a one-sided phone call i can do but if you're asking me to do a big giant scene it's gonna be tough unless you're like ron who lets me write it down and i can score it and, and read it you know off camera Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, all you have to do is ask him, did you, did you ever see Apollo 13 <laughs> be in a room full of right. people? I know about block shooting. Yeah. yeah. I, I was trying to figure out that, you know, with all the different shots for that, the one minute that we're in, gosh, I mean, the, ma the master shot of everybody in it, they had to reset the cameras and the lenses and things like that. It, how, how long did it take to shoot just that one, that one portion of it? Was it, was it done in a day? Was it done in three days? I, I mean, there wasn't a lot I think of dialogue. We that, I think we shot that sequence to me where we're waiting. I think that, the actual moment where we're all sitting there and they're going 13 is Houston, you know, and they keep repeating yeah. that. I think that was all done in one day actually, because they I had, could. they had a big crane on stage that they used that had like a big panorama kind of shot. And then they had different, after we got the, the main shot, then they went in and, and did shots of people celebrating and like Gary Sinise standing there and I shake his hand, we're all smoking cigars, all that stuff. And it wasn't really choreographed, I mean, or, or blocked. It was just Ron let us do what we needed to do, which was really great and freeing as an artist because, you know, you want to jump up and down and stuff, but then you also have to look around at the people that matter to you in the scene that you're doing them with, even though it's a room full of people. I mean, there's Gary Sinise, there's my other Capcom, there's Ed, there's everyone, you know, that you... Yeah interacted with for that period of time that mattered to that character so it, i think it was primarily we shot that one minute or however long it lasts on film in a day and maybe there were some pickup shots another day but it was primarily one day ron's really concise in how he directs and knows what he needs and uh, that's the great thing i mean like you work with great directors like ron or even chris nolan i mean we we're shooting dark knight rises he you know we'd be shooting he goes well we're not going to work tomorrow tomorrow's Friday he goes I know I think I've got what I needed and it's gonna be a big week next week I want to get the crew a rest wow <laughs> and you go well that's what you can do when you have 250 million dollar budget you know I mean you yeah. can take the day off you know and he did that a, few, a couple of times and I and I was wrapped and they wouldn't let me leave and I said why can't I leave and they said well we have to see dailies because he shot the IMAX camera he shot he shot so many different types of film that you know it was just it was fascinating to watch someone who's that smart and knows exactly what he wants and knows how to tell a story as Ron does. 
you know, I've watched Ron directed me that I watched him on Cinderella man. I was shooting a movie in Toronto and he was there and I went and hung out with him on set and just how he directs and how he trusts the people around him and how he trusts his DP and, and says, well, what do you go? Oh, I think we should do this. Okay, great. Let's do that. He's got it in his head what he needs. And if it's not, Andy has a great story about Ron Howard. Well, actually, yeah. Andy told me this later. He'll listen to you. He'll listen to all your ideas. But if he says, but it's not going to happen. And he said, I've seen him do it to De Niro. I saw him do it to Ed Harris, although with Ed Harris, because Ed wanted to do it this one way. And he goes, okay, you know, but, but, you know, I think, you know, and, and what Ed did is he goes, it doesn't feel right, Ron. It just doesn't feel right. He goes, okay, Ed, let's do this. Let's shoot it the way you want. Let's do that. We'll, we'll have that one take or, you know, whatever, the way you feel that it should be done. And then would you try it my way? And he went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to Ron's credit, I think he actually used Ed's original interpretation of the moment that he was shooting. Wow. Movie. He was so great in that movie. And I, it was so weird. I just, I, I hadn't seen Ed a lot over the years, but I saw him in New York because he was doing To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, which is one of our favorite books and movies. And why our daughter's named Harper. Harper, Harper. Yeah. I went backstage. It is weird. I, I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm 63. I've actually grown an inch in the last 10 years. I don't know how that's possible, but I have. I used to be 6'2", I'm 6'3 now. <laughs> and I walked into his dressing room. You know, there's Ed, and I forgot how small Ed is. He's not a real tall man, you know. He's really fit. But, like, I gave him a hug. I had to bend down and give him a little hug, you know. I was like, God damn, dude, it's been so long. <laughs> and he, by the way, was amazing in that play. Oh, my God, he was great. And so was Jeff Daniels. I saw them both do it because I was there doing Joker when I saw Jeff, and I was doing Blacklist when I saw Ed. Wow. Yeah, and he's and he's and he's still doing going strong on uh, Westworld. It's just amazing, his mm -hmm. range. His per, and he was I think he's perfectly cast in a, in Westworld. I mean, he really just has he can hold an expression on his face for hours. It's just yeah, he's he's an amazing. Yeah, his intensity. I mean, you know, he's he's a he's such a great actor. And, and I mean, I saw him before I knew him. I saw him on Broadway because they did it in San Francisco at the Black Box first. But I saw him do the the Broadway premiere of Fool for Love with Kathy Baker, which was cool because I later worked with Kathy and she played my wife and, you know, huh. it's just really cool when you see people you admire and then you get to work with them. Yeah, he, he, um, he always, he always manages to find, you, you can forget about him being Ed Harris when he's in a film. You see him do, I mean, he's, he played John Glenn, he played Gene Krantz, but you'd never, you'd never confuse the two. He, he had, you know, totally different expressions. His whole demeanor, completely different. You know, same, same topic, but he could play two different people and you could, you didn't have to think, oh, it's, that's Ed Harris. Now he's, you know, you don't think of him now that's Ed Harris. It's now he's Gene Krantz. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he, you know, the interesting thing, and, and I've learned this from other actors, watching them work, work, working with Gene Hackman and stuff. It's like, it's them, but they, they, they do these, and, and, and I've tried to incorporate it in my work. You know, I mean, I used to work from the outside in. I would find a physicality that worked for me for a character and then would start working on the internal stuff. Because of a teacher I had, Kim Stanley, who you, I, you might know who that is, but she was considered the greatest actress of her time. Was the, she was called the female Marlon Brando. She did, like, you know, all of Tennessee Williams' plays on Broadway. And, and out in the West. Poncho Barnes in The Right Stuff. Yeah, that's she right. She was, yes, that's her. She made me reverse that. And then I watch people like Gene and Ed, and I watch how they're, sometimes there'll be a, a, a sort of a physicalization that they create, but for the most part, it's really an internal organism that they find that matters to him to play that role. And that changes, like you said, an expression. It changes their intensity levels, whether it's what, who the person is. 
and what they love and what matters to them. I mean, for instance, on Big Dogs, <coughs> I showed up in New York and I, I, I said, you know, I met Adam, the writer of the books and the co-writer of the scripts. And I said, I, I need to talk to you. And he said, well, what's up? I said, I need to know the one thing that matters to this man. I need to know the, what, what is his soul? What matters to him more than anything in the world? And he goes, well, his son, but he died in the Gulf War because he was a Marine, as you were. And then you became a policeman. He said, so the only thing that matters to you now is, the, is your police department because it's all you have. You're not married anymore. You've got ex-wives. But the only person that mattered to you was your son. So once I had that knowledge, I knew who this guy was. You know, I mean, there was the other things I had to work on, the New York accent and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I knew who he was and what mattered to him. And that these detectives were his children that he had to teach. He has to berate. He has to discipline because there's bad cops and good cops in his group. And they do dumb, dumb, and they, some do some good stuff. <laughs> it's so for an actress, when you watch people like Ed or Gene Hackman or, you know, any great actor, you, you, John Wayne was a great actor when he worked with John Ford. He, you know, and he was, he was wonderful. I, I don't agree with his politics, but he was a wonderful actor. But, you know, back in that day, you became a movie star, you kind of had a, I guess you'd call it a brand, the John Wayne, I'm gonna, hey, I got a partner, you know, he's like, hey, he always did. And that was okay then. But now as we've progressed over the years with Brando and then moving forward with Pacino and De Niro and everyone, they, the, the characters mattered more than the brand, if that yeah. makes sense to you. Yeah, and I, and I think Tom Hanks is the ultimate expression Tom, of that, you know, I yeah, mean. Tom is like, oh my God. Yeah. The only thing know, Tom's I, never done, I've never seen Tom do a big sex scene. <laughs> but he, I, mean, I saw I saw Tom on Broadway. You know, he did the play that Nora Ephron wrote, um, and I went backstage and saw him because my friend Chris McDonald was in it. I, there was a bunch of people I knew in it actually. Peter, who was in uh, bosom buddies with Tom, who's married to a dear friend of mine from Houston. So I, you know, it was great to see those people. And but Tom is a he's he's a chameleon in the sense I don't see him playing many bad guys which is what was so great with the movie he did with paul newman where he played the hitman oh yeah yeah um, uh the name of that film but he was so amazing because it was like here's this really wonderful actor really playing a dark dark person a dark character that you just wouldn't think of tom playing and he did it so effort effortlessly it was great he always stretches himself in every one of his in every one of his films and you know you think i, I mean you think about him in big and you think about him in apollo 13 and it's like Okay, that's the same guy playing roles that you wouldn't, you know. Well, you think about him in Philadelphia. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. Gosh, like, I mean, come that's, on. That's, you know, you go from there to uh, what Tom is. He's the modern day Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I agree. I I agree very much so. And I can't imagine anybody else playing this role in our time. I can't imagine anybody else for the part of Jim Lovell right now. I just I can't see. No. That's no, not an interchangeable part. You needed a Tom Hanks to play a Jim Lovell. Yeah, you need someone who has the strength to tell him to shut up, but also the strength to like understand the pain those guys are in and to try and be supportive because he's the leader of the team. Tom is that guy. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like him so much. Well, we're trying to have him on uh, soon. Obviously, we're coming running out of minutes, but I will ask him about that sex scene that you were interested in. No, I wouldn't do that. No. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Oh gosh! Well, well, listen, Brett. So, thank you again so much for being on our show. Uh, this is this is one of I, I know this is one of Chris of mine's favorite movies, and you helped make it uh, one of our favorite movies. And, and thanks well, for thank that, you guys. I really appreciate that, and I appreciate talking about it because it really is, like I said, it's monumental on so many levels, from my family to my craft to you know things that make that things I learned on that film. And the people I met, the people I worked with who affected me, particularly Tom, 
and also been able to work with Bill, who was a really old friend of mine, a fellow Texan. And, and, you know, it just, it was an important film to me in terms of my career. It was an important film to me personally. And uh, the, uh, the honor of being able to work with all those great actors and a great director and a great crew was just beyond my imagination, what it could have possibly been. It was, it was better than anything I ever dreamed. Yeah, and, and definitely, like you said, it's a, it's a landmark that I think your grandchildren will be proud to show their kids. As yeah. to, this is what Grandpa did. Um, yeah. But I, again, th- thanks for being a part of our show. And uh, I'm definitely checking out uh, Big Dogs on uh, on Amazon because it just sounds fascinating. And Check um, that out. And whenever it comes out, the HBO show, it's going to be... It's going to be good. I mean, my daughter went to the rap party with me and he showed a five minute clip of outtakes and stuff. My daughter looked at me and said, holy dad, man, I know. And then Adam said, what'd you think? And I, and I held my fingers up with like just a, a fraction of an inch away from each other. And I said, you're this close to Boogie Nights. Because it's that period, 7980, where <laughs> drugs and women and debauchery and also really cool stuff was happening. And, and it just... It was that period of time. It's when I first moved to LA when it was like, it was so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll definitely check that out. But again, thanks for being on our show. Uh, Thanks for having me. You guys have a good, a good day and uh, I'll look forward to hearing this. Well, great. Well, let me, uh, let me just let our our viewers know that uh, if you would like to uh, respond to us, this this has been a great episode. We're always available on uh, social media at uh, Facebook on the Apollo 13 mission control also on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, we will return uh, tomorrow to finish up this week. But uh, uh, in the meantime, it looks like we're coming up on Lost of Signal in about 30 seconds. So we'll see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.